Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. All right, time to preview the SEC here on the College Football Survivor Show. We have done the ACC. We've done the Big Ten. We've done the Big 12. Now Mike Rodak of AL.com covers Alabama is here to help Shahan and I talk SEC. Pac-12 next week will wrap up our playoff previews for the Power 5 conferences. All right, Mike, just right off the top, are both Georgia and Bama going 12-0? and is that is there a better place, Shahan? I know I usually like try to work in, and I'm friendly. It's like, hey, welcome to the show. We can be real about this. We can be real. Can we be real? I don't know what to do, Mike. We're going to talk about dark horses. We're going to talk about spoilers. But I also think it's possible that the two teams that played for the national championship and the SEC championship last year are going to go a combined twenty four and zero, and then play each other again, maybe twice. So. Let's start there. Is it possible Bama and Georgia steamroll? Possible. I'm not an SEC historian. I don't know if any two SEC teams have ever gone undefeated up until a national championship game. I could be wrong, but yeah, I mean, that would be unprecedented, I would imagine. So, I mean, it's possible. And that's the way college football has gone, too, where it just seems like there's a collection of, of power at the top. And you have Georgia and Alabama almost every single year being in that spot. So, yeah, I, I could envision it, but... I don't know if I'd say it's likely, and especially on Georgia's end. I think Georgia's going to have a tougher time getting back to where they were last year than Alabama will, just by virtue of who they lost. I think Alabama's in a much better position um, because of who they kept versus what Georgia's lost. I just want to be clear. When we were going to do this podcast, I put out a call for an SEC historian, and you raised your <laughs> hand, Mike. So like, uh, to act like, oh, I don't know what happened in 1958 in the SEC. Okay, well – The the nice thing is we actually only have to remember back to, what, 1998 because we didn't have national championship games before that. That's true. So so I I think we can be pretty confident. uh, The the SEC rematches, obviously there's Alabama-LSU back in 2011, which was a one-loss team. We got uh, Georgia-Alabama in 2017. I I don't know if we got another one in the BCS era that was a a straight-up rematch. Um, And frankly, we also – we only pretend college football started with the actual playoff era in 2014. (laughs) Yes. As far as we know, definitely no no undefeateds against We've had eight years of college football. Nothing else matters to us. All right. So when we talk about the most likely playoff team, Mike, do you think – is there a separation in your mind between Alabama and Georgia as I think what people would acknowledge are the two best teams of this conference? Is Alabama significantly ahead? Uh, I don't know if I'd say significantly, but I do think there's a separation compared to last year where I thought – to be honest, I thought Georgia had the edge, not just by winning the game, but just going into that game as well. I I think Georgia was the better team. They were considered the better team last year. But then you go out and you lose everybody they lost in their front seven, which how many many – you know, first of um, not first round draft picks, but second round draft picks too. Third round draft picks they had from that front seven. Um, that's hard to replace right away. And yeah, they have Stetson Bennett coming back. 
I don't know if he's a, a difference maker that's going to go out and win a game against Alabama. Sort of did, I guess, in the national championship game late in that game. But I don't know if they were to play an entire season again with that same team, if Stetson Bennett would be making that same sort of difference. So I think Alabama coming back with Bryce Young on, on offense and Will Anderson on defense is really that's the key for them. Um, this is a year where, you know, you know, both those guys are coming out in the draft. They're both only juniors, but I think everybody can safely say they're going to be top five picks at this rate. And this is their last year. So there's definitely a sense that if Alabama is going to win with the current group they have, it's going to be this year. And then they might have to rebuild a little bit after that and, and find a new quarterback. So that's, that's kind of where they're at. I think it's definitely a place where Alabama is a little bit ahead because of who they have coming back. Georgia still has a very good team, but when you have, 15 draft picks as they had especially on defense it's just going to be tough to get back to that same spot yeah five first rounders off that defense Shahan on one hand it's like oh my god what a talent train how can anybody withstand that on the other hand it's not completely unreasonable to be like well you know Georgia plays good defense they recruited a high level they'll just have the next batch of guys ready but I think the difference Shahan right is that Georgia it wasn't just a good defense. It was one of the best defenses we ever saw that did carry what was a competent but not tremendous offense necessarily. If Georgia's defense goes from one of the best all time to just one of the best in the country, Shahan, that's a step down for them. And how much does that de- change the equation for the Bulldogs? Yeah, I mean, I think that 2021 was such a weird year from that perspective, right? Because we haven't seen a team that's been so kind of obviously one-sided in the national championship in, in many years at this point. And the thing is, if if it's a, the best version of Alabama, right? Because I think that 2021 was very much a transitionary year for Alabama, a transitionary year for Ohio State. I don't know if it works, right? In in many other years, if Georgia's kind of as one-dimensional as they are. And so... The thing that I will say the other way, though, is they play Oregon week one, Georgia does, and then they play a bunch of teams who maybe will be borderline top 25, maybe, like maybe Tennessee's okay, maybe Kentucky wins nine or ten games again. I don't know which team on the schedule legitimately has a chance of beating Georgia so I could see this being a very Florida State 2014 type of season where Georgia Mm. goes through and we're all like I mean they're better than who they're playing but they're not like a national title kind of team and then they go to the SEC championship game and things go badly against Alabama which still might be enough to get them into the field so Mike when we when we talk about Alabama it's possible that Bama has the two best players in the country Mm mm-hmm what do they what else does Alabama have? Because that's where everybody goes. All right, they have the Heisman winner at quarterback. They have the best defensive player in the country in Will Anderson. How much else is there around them to think, yeah, Alabama is the best team in the country? So right now, if I were to kind of go through their roster and pick who could be drafted next year in the NFL, there's more than 20 guys more than 20 guys that could be drafted um, right now. And a lot of them are on defense. And so I think more of the known quantities are on defense because those are the guys who have been around for a few years. Jordan Battle. I think that would be a record. It would be a break record by a few guys. But <laughs> I think the record's 14-20. Okay. I'm getting a little... I'm getting a little clumped. Realistically, twenty. Wow. Yeah, Doug, this this might be breaking news. Alabama's really good. Yeah, well, I didn't know it was twenty. <laughs> I didn't know it was twenty. 
that's what I'm getting at, too, in terms of, you know, the world's not going to come crashing down for Alabama next year. But this is kind of their in terms of the team they have right now. This is their window. They got to do it this year because they could lose a lot of guys next year. But on defense, I mean, Jordan Battle came back as for a senior year, could have been a first round, like borderline first round, second round pick. Henry Toe Toe is probably a second round pick last year. He came back at linebacker. Um, I mean, they have a, a pretty strong defensive line. I don't know if there's going to be high draft picks there, but um, I mean, it's a defense that I'd say 75, 80% of it's going to be back from last year. And when you have Will Anderson, yeah, that's great, but their secondaries experienced and they know what they're doing. I mean, their defensive line's very experienced. Linebackers are, there's a ton of talent there. They have four or five, five stars at outside linebacker. I mean, defensively, they're in good shape. I think offensively is where the question marks are, at least in terms of guys who we've never seen in Alabama uniform before, but they brought in four transfers at offense who could all start and which starts with Jameer Gibbs from Georgia Tech, who was, you know, probably in a system there where wasn't exactly able to play the way that he, he needed to, you know, Georgia Tech's a little bit more conservative, but he put Jameer Gibbs in Alabama's system at running back, a really explosive guy who can catch the ball out of the backfield, turn it into a 70 yard touchdown. I mean, he's probably one of the most explosive guys that they have on this team. When you lose Jamison Williams, they're able to bring in a guy like Gibbs in your backfield. And then at wide receiver, it's a question mark because we don't know how these guys are going to transition from their, their old schools to their new schools. But they bring in Jermaine Burton from Georgia and they bring in Tyler Harrell from Louisville. Harrell being one of the fastest players in the country who, you know, you don't have too many opportunities to really showcase that at Louisville. At Alabama with Bryce Young, a quarterback, you probably can. So we don't know exactly how it's going to work um, in terms of whether those guys pan out in the same way that Jameson Williams did when he came from Ohio State. But if it does, that's where your your supporting cast is going to be for Bryce Young. Is that running back at wide receiver with the transfers that they brought in versus kind of the defense, which is just a lot of veterans, a lot of guys who kind of come up in the system. And I, I will ask. So obviously last year, like you talk about uh, in that national championship game, the two receivers go out and things look like a mess. Uh, they add guys to replace that. My bigger question for them though is there were times last year where I was shocked that an Alabama offensive line looked like that. Mm-hmm. Do they have the guys? They obviously bring in Tyler Steen from Vanderbilt. They obviously bring some guys back. Do they feel like they're going to get back to having an Alabama offensive line again this year? On the interior, yes. I think they're much more comfortable with the inside guys. You know, those guys have been two or three year starters now. You know, they're not they're not first round pick type of guys, but they're I think they're reliable enough where they can get by with those guys. It's the tackle positions that are the question marks. Yeah. We watched a lot of right tackle last year at Alabama and we could not believe what we were seeing. That was their weakest spot last year out of their 22 positions. And if you look at their entire roster this year, the tackle spots very much have the potential to be their two weakest positions. Again, it depends on Steen. Like we don't know how Tyler Steen is going to look in an Alabama uniform. You would think if he was at Vandy and he's four-year starter there, if he truly had NFL, um, he was truly on the NFL radar, then he would have just gone to the NFL. So the fact that he has to go somewhere else and play a fifth year, it probably means he has something to prove in the eyes of scouts, I would imagine. So there's there's certainly a, a projection that needs to be made with him. And then right tackle is also a projection. I mean, they they brought in two five-star freshmen last year, a tackle. One of them did not play at all. And when he played in the spring game, couple weeks ago or back in April, he looked terrible. He was just beaten off the edge three or four times and they ended up pulling him from the game. Tommy Brockemeyer. 
And so the other five-star they brought in is J.C. Latham, who I would say is probably the favorite to start at right tackle. But again, a guy who's never really played before. And that does have the potential to be a problem area for them when you're talking about pass protection and trying to get that offense going with the deep ball again uh, with Bryce Young. This this feels like a dang, this feels dangerous. I'm I I feel like everybody in college football twenty. Okay, I can't. So it was like okay, last year it's like last year was the year to get Bama, right? I mean, Zach Calzada got them, and then Auburn had them and let them wiggle out, and then all of a sudden Alabama's in the national championship game, and it's like they shouldn't have been there. Saban's like, oh, you didn't you didn't kill us. We're here. And now now Saban's like, oh, by the way, whole defense, all five stars. Yeah. So that's going to be great. And then, by the way, yeah, we had some holes on offense. So we brought in starters from Georgia, Louisville, Georgia Tech and Vanderbilt. And now we're fine because we got the Heisman winner there, too. You missed us last year. But now but now we're ready. I will say Tyler Steen, when we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago, Mike, we did the most important people in the college football playoff race. And he was on the list for me. Yeah. If he wins and locks down one of these tackle jobs a couple of years ago, it was guard, not tackle. I'll, I'll admit, but Ohio state brought in a transfer from Rutgers. And it's like, I don't know what's going on with this. And it was Jonah Jackson who wound up being a first team, all big 10 player and is a starter in the NFL right now. And it's like, like a Rutgers guy coming to Ohio State. It's like, no, no, he's a really good football player. I'm like, right. it's possible, right? It's like, does Vanderbilt have a bunch of really good football players? No. But do they have one good football player? Maybe. And Saban took him. And Saban. So this to me, again, is like Saban's like, uh, you, whatever your rules are, cool. And the rules are you're allowed to take four starters from mediocre teams, one from the national champ, three from mediocre teams. And add them to your juggernaut, and Saban's like, cool, we're good. This should be an offense with some holes, Mike. But they filled them, and the defense might be – I've been saying, hey, Clemson's defense is going to be the new Georgia defense this year. Actually, maybe it's Alabama's defense. And then you let, just let keep enough pressure off Bryce Young for them to do his thing. Let the skill guys be average. Bryce Young will elevate them. All right, Bama wins it all. All right, that was it for the College Football Survivor Show. It's over. <laughs> It's over. Why are we even doing this? This whole enterprise is a fraud. We create a whole podcast. Hey, let's talk about the playoff all year. 365 days of the playoff. Then it's like, oh, by the way, Bama's awesome See you again. In January. Great. See you in January. <laughs> I, I have to ask both you guys because, because Doug, obviously you're around Ohio State. Mike, you're around uh, Alabama. What percent of the stories that you two write are just Man, these teams are really good. Like, it, it feels like probably a lot of them, After right? Most games, yeah. I mean, Bryce Young had a big game. Like, Jameson Williams had a big game. Like, what are you right? Like, they won the game. I mean, the only variation there was last year was the um, the Texas A&M loss, which was fun. Like, great environment. You go down there, the fans. Like, I don't say it's fun to watch Alabama lose, but it's different. Like, it's it's definitely changes up the, the pace a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's. It just kind of is what it is, but I think now it's like, all right, they lost the national championship game. It's not, you're not coming off the same sort of feeling as it was when they beat Ohio State, and you feel like they're just going to steamroll everybody again. Y'all, y'all weren't there when I was grinding on the ground watching Rice Wake Forest. Man, you guys aren't, uh, <laughs> you guys aren't real ones like me. I, I will say sometimes when you do cover a team like this, you end up doing a lot of like, sure they won fifty two to ten, but. <laughs> Right. I don't know. But they could have won 55 to 10. Are we sure five touchdown passes from CJ Stroud is enough? I don't know. Is that good enough? Like you start poking holes in tremendous teams because you don't have anything else to do. 
But Saban loved that stuff. Like historically, Saban was always the guy who would come out grumpy after they won by five touchdowns and say, we didn't, you know, stop them on third down in the fourth quarter with our backups. And like, that was how he always was. But then last year, he completely changed. Like his whole vibe last year was supporting his players and it was a lot more positive from him. And that's what he felt like he needed to do with that team. And he even said it at the end of the year. And so there was a game, they played New Mexico State. And I think they won like 62 to seven. And there was a question about like giving up that touchdown to New Mexico State. And he just lit into this kid. He's like, our players just went out there and won by 60 points. And you're asking about that. Like it was completely different from what you'd expect from Saban. <laughs> but that's just who he is, like who he's become is he's so nimble as a coach and that he can just change his style um, to sort of suit what he, he thinks his, his locker room needs. It was kind of interesting to watch last year. I will say, again, I was very enamored going into the 2020 season with the idea of, of angry Bama after they did not make the playoff in 2019 for the first time in the playoff era. They got all their stuff together and then they put out potentially Nick Saban's best team. They had it on both sides. Maybe football's best team ever. <laughs> they were unbelievable. So is there enough? It, it's crazy to say, but. They kind of backdoored their way into the national title game last year, and they did have a season where during the course of last season, Mike, as you were covering the 12-day regular season, you must have felt, Saban felt it like, oh, this isn't quite Bama. But then they wound up being, you know, they finished second in a down year. So they they maximized who they were. Is there any vibe of that? That like, okay, like, uh, like Bama off a, quote, down year, I think should make everybody nervous. Does last year count as a down year? Can you count beating Georgia in the SEC championship game and then losing to them in the national title game as a down year? Yeah, I think that's the standard around here. I think people definitely were upset with how the season ended. I think, you know, a lot of Alabama fans are going to write it off because of the injuries to, to Jameson Williams and John Mechie. And I think a lot of them would say if those two guys were healthy, that they would have won the game. And in fact, I think people within the Alabama building would probably say that to you as well. But I mean, yeah, I think it's the case of like Bryce Young's never won a national championship as the starting quarterback. He won one as backup. What a failure that guy is. Oh, right. my and God. So you're talking about <laughs> his legacy. Wait, wait. He was on the 2020 team. He played, I'm sure, a few snaps. So he's got a ring. He played the final snap or two of that Ohio State game after Mac Jones there was pulled. Go. But um, yeah, I think there's like a legacy thing there where he probably is like, I won the Heisman. I, I'm going to become potentially the number one overall pick, but I, I want to win a national title. I'm sure there's a, a hunger there from how it ended last year because they, I mean, they were in control of that national championship game for a little while. And then Williams got hurt and things kind of fell apart in the second half. Bryce Young looked pedestrian in the second half and their defense fell apart too, where Stetson Bennett, I think had four touchdowns in, in the last 20 minutes or so of that game. So yeah, I think that does leave a sour taste in their mouth. And I think just, you know, the way some of these guys are wired, too, like Will Anderson is, um, you know, Saban basically called him the perfect player. And he's just wired in such a way that he's going to self-motivate and come up with a reason to be mad and come up with a reason to go out there and, you know, be giving 100% effort in the fourth quarter. So I could very easily see a guy like Will Anderson, who's unquestionably the team leader right now, to be sending that message throughout the rest of the team that we didn't end last season on, on the right note in the right way. And, um, you know, we need to do it better this year, essentially. When you have a situation where Bama goes out and gets potentially two starting receivers and a starting running back in the portal and maybe the starting left tackle, that's like the four most important positions on offense other than quarterback. In a world where Alabama can do that now because we have the portal, 
like is Bama can 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 a program like Bama ever really be down again, or are they always going to be able to immediately patch any hole? And they don't have that many holes because you know if this was six years ago, Mike, it'd be like man, Bama's got some young receivers they got to rely on. Oh man, they got two young guys who have to win the tackle jobs, and that's just not the reality. I, I don't even know like what a what a down Bama year would really look like. Right. Neither do I. Um, I mean, I yes and no to that question. Like, I would say, yes, they can go out. Like, if they lose a dozen or more draft picks this year, like, they could lose both safeties, most of their offensive line, both wide receivers again, their running back again, their quarterback. They're right down the line. Their tight end, like, their defensive line, linebackers. Like, they, there's going to be a lot of positions they, they need to replace. They could very easily go out next offseason and find starters at each and every one of those positions. There's not restriction against doing that like they're going to have the scholarships to do it um there's nobody's going to stop them i think the only thing that could slow them down is going to be nil surprisingly but alabama's not in the driver's seat when it comes to nil across the country and i think we're seeing that a little bit we saw i want to say a cry for help from saban but that whole thing in birmingham that got all the headlines about jimbo i mean he was talking to a room of people that had the money and essentially Saban's asking for money from the room, but as much money and support as there is for Alabama and there is in the state, it doesn't compare to what John Ruiz can do for Miami or what Texas A&M can do pulling out of that Houston market, what USC can do in California in the LA market. Like Alabama just doesn't have that same level of, of resource. There's one fortune 500 company in the state. And yes, those things matter now because we were just at SEC meetings last week and Eli Drinkwitz was talking about how many Fortune 500 companies there are in Missouri. So apparently that's a recruiting pitch now is, is how many of those you have in your state. But Alabama just doesn't quite have that amount of um, financial backing to really make some of these NIL deals as competitive as what John Ruiz can offer somebody or, again, some of those other places. So if you have a transfer who's choosing between one school or, or another, and NIL is his biggest factor, Alabama might not win that battle. And I think Alabama's and Saban's trying to send the message that you need to look beyond that. You need to look beyond the short-term financial gain of what you might get in an NIL deal and look at what you might get in the NFL and how many draft picks they've put into the NFL from Bama, how much those draft picks are earned. He's, he keeps throwing out this $1.7 billion number in terms of what they've earned. So that's his message. But at the same time, you can tell sort of why he's saying that, because he feels like maybe there's not that same competitive advantage that he had previously because of what other schools are able to offer in terms of NIL. You hear that, Paul Bryant, uh, play that on a loop. Uh, you know, and Mike doesn't think that you can pay the players well enough. Uh, that, that's what I'm hearing here. That's what I'm hearing. Now I feel bad for Alabama. <laughs> little old Alabama. <laughs> I was like, so here, so how about this? So yeah, you're an experienced journalist, Mike. One last ride. Nick Saban's <laughs> last great team. The story of the 2022 Alabama Crimson Tide. I I want to rule it out. I want to rule out NIL being the thing that pushes Nick Saban to retirement. If this doesn't change in the way that he wants to see it change within the next two years, three years, like. Would I be shocked if Saban just walks away? No. Like, I, I do think him thinking that college football has changed for the worse and that this is not an un, that this is an unsustainable model, as he keeps saying, 
like I, I, there's got to be a point where he retires and like there's got to be a day when that happens. And what's going to be the cause of that day? What's going to be his main driving reason? I could see it being this. I will say, Mike, Ryan Day at Ohio State did basically the exact same thing that Nick Saban did. He just didn't sort of get in a little personal feud while doing it. But Ohio State is in a very similar situation in that they feel like they have to appeal to the larger business community in their city because they don't necessarily have like a single donor who's going to drop a bunch of money on them. And they feel like, hey, like we have a lot of other things that we want to offer recruits that if all of a sudden NIL is a thing, like what about the NFL? What about winning championships? All the things that Bama and Ohio State have pushed before. And they also do think this needs to get worked out in the next two or three years, right? And and they sort of are saying they think it will. I am now very fascinated by Bama and Ohio State hand in hand trying to find out, find the right way in their mind to regulate NIL, to find to what they believe to be the solution to NIL, where maybe it's a group of schools, you got to pay to get in this level of competition, but then we're going to we're going to compete, we're going to have NIL, but we are going to regulate it to some degree and that's going to even the playing field again cuz I don't think Bama or Ohio State like where they are right now and who would have thought that they might be why wouldn't they link up here? Shouldn't they be friends in this effort cuz cuz Saban and Day are kind of the two guys who have gotten out in front of saying this is the reality and we don't exactly love where it is right now. Yeah. Yeah, they they should. I mean, it's it's a case of look, I think this whole thing is headed towards a a super league, a, a premier league of college football where there's 30, 40 teams or so and there's salaries, there's contracts, it's like a pro league and you have a salary cap and that's kind of what Saban's been calling for is essentially a salary cap to even the playing field, competitive balance, all these terms that he keeps using. And he keeps saying, like, the NFL has this system in place. And in his mind, college football just went the NFL route without putting any any of those guardrails in place. And if you put the guardrails in place, then I think that's a more appealing league to both Alabama and Ohio State. If it just remains the way it is, again, there's 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 richer people out there that can can do some damage to what Alabama's done. And it's also possible that Texas A&M, Miami, and USC say, suck it, Alabama and Ohio State. It's our time now. We are the captains now. So, Shahan, like, maybe, maybe those schools, like, don't want to, like, have, hey, oh, Alabama and Ohio State have a good idea. Let's regulate this and get everybody back on equal playing ground again. So, Bama, so Nick Saban can win nine more titles before he retires at age 85. We liked the way that things were before. So weird. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that Tennessee and Miami and USC will definitely love to follow that example. You know, you're right, guys. This isn't fair to Alabama and Ohio State. Let's dial back. Oh my God, we're supposed to be talking about football. Now, now the real question is: is this uh, is this the move that finally convinces Nick Saban to take the Texas job? No. Or the Texas A&M job. Maybe he's like, no, oh, no, Jim- no, no, you got to you got to go to Austin, man. Do you know what rents are there right now? It is crazy. <laughs> there is nothing but money in that city. I'm sweating. <laughs> I, this is too much. I just want to talk. So we have decided that a Alabama's going to dominate college football and steamroll to a national title in 2022, then fall off a cliff, then Alabama and Ohio State will attempt to save college football together, 
then Nick Saban will either retire or become the Texas coach. That's what we've done in the last 25 minutes. I want to make sure. And Ryan Day will become the, the Tennessee coach. It'll be great. And and listen, Shahad and I just like float up here above the clouds. Nobody cares what we say. Mike, you cover Alabama. This is getting hung on you. This five-step <laughs> process for the rest of Nick Saban's career. Did you hear what Rodex said about what's going to happen to Nick Saban? Sorry, man. It's too yeah. interesting. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm going to like de-sweat myself and we're going to come back and talk about I don't know, is there a playoff dark horse in the SEC or does nothing matter? Does anything matter? Because Alabama's going to win every game this year by 60 points. Next on the College Football Survivor Show. Don't miss the College Football Survivor Show bonus episode this week. Available only on Apple Podcasts. Alabama, Texas is a big noon kickoff on Fox on September 10th. Baylor, BYU, 10-15 Eastern. I mean, it's a better game. Which game has two playoff contenders? Baylor BYU does. Alabama Texas does not. It's the <laughs> SEC favorite against the Big 12 favorite. And we're like, yeah, but Baylor BYU. Oh, my God. So much better. Everyone's going to be watching. Alabama Texas, whatever. We can't wait for Baylor BYU. Bryce Young versus Quinn Ewers. And it's like, I don't care. Give me Jared Blake Hall versus Shaping Blake Shapin. versus Jared Hall. <laughs> Let's go. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for exclusive College Survivor Show bonus episodes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That was a hot start. Okay, so if we think, is this is this accepted conventional wisdom, Mike, in SEC country? Alabama's the best team in the SEC this year. Georgia's the second best, and Texas A&M is the third best. Is that conventional wisdom? Yeah, I mean, I would debate the third best. I think Ole Miss can probably be in that conversation. Um, L- not LSU. I mean, it depends how Brian Kelly kind of rebuilds that, how quickly it happens. But yeah, it's between A&M, Ole Miss, somebody from the West, I would say. Um, okay. So if we're going to do Dark Horse, I was trying to figure out if I can have, if, can I have Ole Miss as my Dark Horse? I think so. I, I think anybody but Alabama or Georgia basically is a Dark Horse in this league. So I'll throw out Ole Miss. Um, they don't play Georgia until like really late in the schedule, I think. And they're going to have a chance to sort of uh, sort this out a little bit. Jackson Dart, like, is pretty good. If he does a pretty good um, – not not Georgia. They don't play Alabama until late in the schedule. If if he does, like, a pretty good Matt Corral impersonation, I feel like Lane Kiffin, they got out of sorts a little bit going on for all the fourth downs early against Alabama last year. And that game was sort of over before it started – but I think maybe it's a learning experience for Lane Kiffin. Again, they get them in, is it November? Let's see. It's off a bye, November 12th. And Ole Miss has a bye the week before. So, like, am I predicting that Ole Miss is going to beat Alabama? No, but I'm intrigued by Lane Kiffin sort of learning from last year's experience, having a pretty good quarterback. Does that equal anything? Does anybody else have a different dark horse in the SEC this year? Yeah, I'll, I'll throw out Arkansas. Now, the one thing that I'll say is that Arkansas 
put itself in absolute hell with its schedule. Uh, they play Cincinnati in their first game. They go to BYU on October 15th and also have to play the SEC West. I don't know what the plan was there. <laughs> it seems like a lot of bad ideas stacked on top of each other, but... The plan is not thinking that Cincinnati and BYU are going to be like two of the best 15 programs in college football by the time they played them. And actually, instead of uh, instead of participating in SoCon Saturday, they play Liberty at home. That's not fun. OK, I don't know what they were thinking. They're, they're going to lose a bunch of those games. But I think that Arkansas obviously is, is heading in a good direction. I think that they showed physically against Texas A&M against Alabama last year that they're coming along. I think that they're going to be even better this year uh, in the trenches. I think, uh, you, you know, they lost a couple guys on defense, but I think that maybe K.J. Jefferson can can help make up some of that ground, even though they lost Traylon Burks. They're just a team that I think has an identity, is heading in a direction. I think that people are buying in in a big way. They've developed, I think, at a high level. So, you know, they've obviously recruited pretty well, but not like at a top SEC level. But I think that they've developed uh, quite a bit better than everybody else. They're intriguing to me. Uh, again, if they didn't put themselves in absolute hell with their schedule. And uh, in, in the first half of the season, they get Cincinnati, South Carolina with Spencer Rattler, Bobby Petrino, Missouri State, which obviously they'll win that game, versus Texas A&M versus Alabama. That's a bad way to start the season. But if they survive that, if they survive that with only one loss, for example, that's a good place to be. I thought you were going to say uh, they have a chance to be the best one in five team in college football after that start. <laughs> They would. <laughs> they absolutely would. Look out for Arkansas's drive to six and six. Mike, you have a dark horse for the playoff here? If you're going to be making the playoff out of the SEC West, then you need to beat Alabama. Otherwise, you're not making the SEC championship game. And if you're not doing that, then you're probably not making the playoff or definitely not making the playoff. So um, that's really the question for me is who can beat Alabama. And I think it's comes down to Ole Miss or Texas A&M. In this case, you look at where the games are, and I think that's going to play a role. Texas A&M plays at Tuscaloosa this year. Alabama plays in Oxford. Remember the last time Alabama played in Oxford was two years ago. It was a COVID year, um, so the stadium was only 20% full, but that was a great game, and I was there for that. It was, um, I think it set a bunch of records in terms of offense. It was 700 yards Alabama had, but Ole Miss had a bunch as well. Um, I think they scored like 90-something combined points. I mean, it was a game. Uh, up until the last couple possessions offensively for Ole Miss, where I think they kicked field goals instead of touchdowns. And in that game, that was a huge difference. So point being, I think Alabama goes into Oxford next year. That that could be their, their toughest game with just the way that, that Ole Miss has played with the way that Lane Kiffin sort of turned that around. Um, if I was Alabama, I'd probably be more concerned about that game than A&M. I think there's still a lot of hype around A&M. Um, I don't know if they just come into Tuscaloosa next year and we know that environment, given everything that's happened, you know, this this last month here is is gonna be as wild as it's probably been in a while in terms of fans, you know, going into Jimbo and all that. So I, I still think the tougher game for Alabama is, is gonna be Ole Miss. And if Ole Miss can pull that off, then if you look at the rest of their schedule, and that game is late too. So they'll need to really play well up until then. But Troy, Central Arkansas, Georgia Tech, Tulsa. In September, Kentucky, Vanderbilt. I mean, <laughs> they don't play somebody until Auburn, and Auburn may not be somebody. Uh, so, really, for Ole Miss, it's LSU at LSU at AM, home against Alabama at Arkansas. That's their tough stretch. And then they play, you know, Mississippi State in the Egg Bowl. If they can beat Bama, then, you know, they got a shot. And that's, that would be, 
and they've beaten Bama before. I mean, totally different coaches, but you go back to 2014 um, when they beat Alabama at Oxford, and then I think it was the next year I wasn't covering them back there. There's two games in there where Ole Miss beat Alabama. It's happened before. I don't think it's a crazy thought. I, I just still think that they're probably, given how things went last year, in the better position than, than A&M to make that happen. Even though A&M beat Alabama last year, but I think overall A&M is um, you know, in, a, in a better spot, or Ole Miss is in a better spot than A&M. Okay, so, what, so when we think, though, about the game of the year in the SEC and the game that's going to matter most for the playoff race. And you can't say the SEC championship game. You can't say the, because like, of course, (laughs) but like, can we still say Alabama, Texas A&M? I mean, that's going to be like, Mike, are you guys going to do like a 10 part series building up to that game? I can't even imagine how AL.com is going to cover Alabama, Texas A&M. You just made a compelling case for why the Ole Miss game might be more important, but is it, and it's in terms of juice, at least, right? Bama, Texas A&M is the game of the year in college football, right? Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, and I think that's, again, I think there's going to be a lot of hype around that game. I still am not totally convinced with A&M for everything to come together with them. Like, they've had some good recruiting classes, yeah, but overall the product on the field the last couple of years has been less than desired, I, I would say, for Jimbo. So that's, yeah, it, there's more hype than than substance there to me. I think Ole Miss, and yeah, there was a lot of hype going to the Ole Miss-Alabama game last year, like you said, and that was a complete dud. I mean, Ole Miss just did not show up for that game, um, which is a problem for them. But after that, Ole Miss played really well down the stretch. I mean, they were right there in terms of if Alabama slipped up, Ole Miss still had a shot going into you know those last couple of weeks. So um, that's a good team. I, I still think Ole Miss is a better team, and A&M still a little bit of, you know, sizzle right now more than they are substance. Mike, you do not want to know how hard I leaned into Ole Miss before the Ole Miss Alabama game last year. We had Ole Miss people on the show. I think I picked Ole Miss. I thought this was it. Here we go. Bama's vulnerable. Lane Kiffin's coming in for the kill. And then they went 0 for 4 on fourth downs in the first, first six minutes of the game. It was like, well, that's over. Uh, I'm curious, Shahan, you had heaping ladles of skepticism that you dumped on Coach O and LSU a year ago. Is Texas A&M now the object of your skepticism in the SEC? Like when I say, okay, well, Bama, Texas A&M, that should be the game of the year in the SEC. Do you think, as Mike said, that that Texas A&M right now this year is much more sizzle than substance? Well, let, let's not be let, – let's be fair to them, okay? I mean, LSU last year heading into the year was something completely different than what Texas A&M is going to be right now. That was okay. that was a whole different situation. But, but I do think Texas A&M has had now four straight years of elite recruiting classes. But heading into last year, they had three straight years of elite recruiting classes and haven't performed, right? Like, I mean, they have a roster that ranks among the top five to seven in college football, and they did last year – and they were an eight and four team, right? I mean, yes, they beat Alabama, which I, I, you know, great for them. And, and I think that they had a great game plan. Uh, you know, obviously Zach Calzada played the game of his life, but they have not shown the ability week in and week out to be an elite caliber team. I mean, I would make the comparison uh, a little for how quickly things happened at Georgia when Kirby Smart got there, right? They built up a roster that was better than everybody else. And then by like year three, after they made that national title game, from that moment on, they played better than everybody else. 
that hasn't really happened at Texas A&M. They had that great third year, uh, obviously, where they go nine and one and win the Orange Bowl. To follow it up with such an inconsistent season is pretty disappointing to me. And so I think from a talent perspective, I like what they have. Uh, obviously, I mean, they have the number one recruiting class in the history of recruiting. Uh, Evan Stewart, I think, is going to be an immediate contributor. I think there are some guys on defense who could contribute right away. Defensive line, they're going to be, I mean, among the best in the country, of course. But until the results come, like, it's just one of those things, right? I just have to wait to actually see it happen before I can say Texas A&M is going to be an 11-1 team that beats Alabama and makes the SEC championship game. All right, so does, is there another game of the year in the SEC that, that somebody wanted to throw out beyond? I mean, again, Mike, you talked about the Ole Miss-Alabama game. We just talked about Alabama-Texas A&M. Anybody have another one? I mean, Alabama-Texas, let's not forget about that either. Again, I think that's probably a game that's going to happen. I, I have to run back the same joke that I run back on every uh, every podcast, which is, why are we talking about Texas? It's a playoff show. Right. It depends on – I mean – it depends on how you view Texas, but I, I do think Alabama going into Austin um, on a 175 degree day in September at, for an 11 a.m. kickoff when, you know, I, there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of hype about that game because of Sarkeesian, because of Ajay Hall and Julio Billingsley, who transferred from Alabama on not very good terms. Um, can that somehow translate into an upset for Texas? I think would I mean, that would change this whole season for college football. That's week two. Um, if Alabama were somehow to lose that game, the Texas wins. I mean, imagine hype around Texas coming out of that game. Imagine some of the doom and gloom around Alabama coming out of that game. That would change the season uh, if that happened. I don't know if it will happen, but I, I think in terms of having a big game, that's that's the biggest test Alabama's going to have the first four weeks of the season because otherwise they play Utah State, ULM, and Vandy. So if it's not going to be Texas, it's, then Alabama's going to be waltzing into October. Yeah, I, I don't think that Alabama or Georgia really has like a signature game like that, right? Georgia plays Oregon. I, I don't think Oregon's going to be ready to compete with Georgia right away. Uh, this kind of gets to another deal. I, I think that we might figure out whether Texas A&M is at least ready to maybe take that step in week three against Miami. Uh, Miami, one of the better quarterbacks that Texas A&M will play all year, Tyler Van Dyke. Uh, obviously a new coaching staff. Josh Gaddis won the Broyles Award last year at Michigan as the best assistant in football. Uh, Kevin Steele is a proven defensive coordinator, and he obviously knows Texas A&M. He knows a lot of SEC teams from his time at Auburn. So I, I think that there's reasons to believe that Texas A&M Miami could tell us something about A&M's stature in the SEC and playoff race. Again, no game of the year cannot involve Alabama or Georgia because those are the two teams that are going to most likely make the playoff. But uh, but I do think that that will give us an early indication. If Texas A&M kind of comes out right away and looks really good, I, I mean, it's kind of funny. It's, it's a similar situation, I think, to last year with uh, Michigan State playing Miami, right? We kind of saw Michigan State can hang with these guys uh, and they look like the more aggressive, physical, athletic team. Now, you expect that from Texas A&M, but if they really look like it from week one, uh, especially on you know at quarterback, especially if they're able to kind of look really athletic at receiver, that could be an indicator game that says, all right, Texas A&M's a team that we should take seriously. Mike, I do want to touch on the Alabama-Texas game. Alabama, and I've called Nick Saban a diabolical scheduling genius in the past because they managed to schedule a lot of these neutral site games 
And it would always be against a team that was like 15th, 18th in the early rankings and then wound up going six and six. And Bama would get some early juice off of beating them, but they were never really in danger of losing to them. And now Alabama awesomely has entered the world of scheduling home and home series against national powers. They have it with Texas. They have it coming up with Wisconsin. They have it coming up with Florida State. They have it coming up with West Virginia. They have it coming up with Ohio State in 2027 and 2028. They have it with Notre Dame in 2029 and 2030. They have it with Oklahoma. They basically said, we're now going to schedule home and homes with the biggest programs in the country. What? And this is the beginning of that, this trip to Texas. 11 a.m. in Austin is not normally something Nick Saban would be up for. Why did this change? It's great. But why is Bama doing well, it? Don't forget about Boston College either. I think it's 2034. Oh, Chestnut Hill, Nick Saban, and Chestnut Hill is what college football is all about. And Matt Ryan, Phil Dracovic, the cradle of quarterback. AJ McCarron and Doug Flutie <laughs> and the history. Oh, yeah, beautiful. Can't wait for that one. Um, but yeah, it's, it's I think it's it's more on a um administration level than it probably is a Nick Saban level, which again, there's I don't know how much of a separation there is there, but I do think that for fans has been their story that they don't they want fans to be able to experience games at home. And obviously there's a financial component there. If you're playing Texas at home, you're probably going to be pulling in some money um, in terms of concessions and all that. And they've put hundreds of millions of dollars into Bryant Denny stadium. So why not use it to play a big game instead of just playing Utah state? Um, so I think that's part of the thinking. And then also giving fans an opportunity to go on the road to some places where they've probably never been like Wisconsin, Notre Dame, the ones places you all just listed where Alabama doesn't typically go. Um, and fans have complained about the neutral site games being a just trips that they've made 10 times before Dallas, Orlando, Atlanta, like it's the same sort of rotation. Fans go to Atlanta all the time for SEC championship games, not the same atmosphere though. Um, when you have those opening games. So I, I think it was just stale. You know, there was a financial component to it, obviously playing those neutral site games, you get a certain payout or whatever, but. You know, they didn't do it in the COVID year when they were supposed to play USC in Dallas. And I think once they sort of broke that that mold, broke that trend a little bit, um, you know, they they started to really move away in that direction and start scheduling all these going forward. So um, I, th- I do think it's more fan-driven than a, a Nick Saban thing. And because a lot of these, like you said, Saban's probably not going to be coaching in most of those games. We'll see if he sticks around for the West Virginia game. That's, uh, that's probably a big one for him. But... I do think it's more on the AD level than it was his level. Yeah, no, I do think that it's like they're going to play Ohio State in 27 and 28. I'm going to cover the game in Tuscaloosa in 28 and then retire immediately afterward and drive to Disney World. That's the end for me because I've been waiting for Ohio State and Alabama to play. But I'm sure next day was like, great, schedule Ohio State. I'm not going to be here. (laughs) Schedule Notre Dame. Good luck, Dabo. That's not my game. So then it's like, okay, well, you know. We don't need to have a content. But yeah. yeah. The, the Lane Kiffin versus Matt Ryan, uh, Alabama, Boston College game is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, my God. That again, that'll be next summer's desperate content, picking the coaching <laughs> matchups for the games on the schedule in 2032. Uh, OK, let's talk about spoilers. We talked about dark horses. Let's talk about spoilers. Listen, they're not going to be in the playoff race, but could they beat a team that is in the playoff race and screw it up for them? And I'm going to start with one of Shahan's favorite college football players. And it's Kentucky quarterback Will Levis, who gets Georgia on November 19th. Will Levis, future first rounder, goes Penn State backup, 
Kentucky starter franchise quarterback in the NFL. That's the path that everybody follows. Number one overall draft. <laughs> Number one. Goodbye. Better than Bright Heisman winner, possibly. We also have a Heisman conversation still to have in this podcast. Kentucky's good now. Kentucky's a real football team. If Georgia's like, ah, we're 10-0, and 0, we're beating everybody up, and they get to game 11 and will left, who's going to be the best quarterback in the Kentucky-Georgia game? Stetson Bennett. <laughs> okay. See – that you hate Will Levis so much. I think it might be Will Levis. So I could see Kentucky being a spoiler in a situation like that. Mike, who's your spoiler potentially in the SEC? So if this was an odd numbered year, I'd pick Auburn because Alabama going to Auburn in the Iron Bowl doesn't matter what sort of year Auburn's having. We saw it last year. Like anything can happen in that game. And, and Alabama's that's a house of horrors for them. So uh, the difference this year is that the game's in Tuscaloosa. And I just don't see Brian Harson if he even has a job by Thanksgiving weekend to be coming into Tuscaloosa and beating Alabama. Uh, I do think one of the teams you mentioned in Arkansas is probably a good candidate with the the direction that they're heading. I'm going to go with LSU. Like I think people are sort of forgetting about LSU. They have good players. I mean, they recruit just as well as anybody. It's fallen off a little bit, but more often than not, like LSU's roster is right up there. Nick Saban mentions that every single year, how talented they are. And, you know, coaching was probably an issue the last couple of years. I think Brian Kelly is going to be a better coach than Coach O was. And that's a dangerous team, especially with Alabama going into Baton Rouge, um, which, again, two years ago they did. It was a COVID year. They blew LSU out. That was not even close. There's not the same atmosphere down there. But those games are always good. When that place is packed on a, a you know a night game, as it usually is against Alabama, that's a game. Like it doesn't matter what happened to LSU the last couple of years. I could see LSU giving Alabama a run for its money when when they play that game. What do you got, Sean? Yeah, I am going to go with Auburn, and for a couple of reasons. One, I do think that it's very possible that uh, that Brian Harson is not the coach by the time that some of its big games come up, but. We'll see if that matters, right? Like, we'll see whether that's a that's a galvanizing force or whether that's a, a, a negative. The other thing, too, is that we've talked to this whole podcast that there are two teams that are almost certainly going to make the playoff. Auburn plays both of them. So they have two opportunities to potentially ruin a playoff case. Uh, both of them are on the road, which is not the best. But I, I do think that that still uh, gives them some good opportunity. Uh, they have, of course, uh, the Alabama whisperer, Zach Calzada. So, you know, there's that's that. real. That's <laughs> real. He, we don't know who, Al- who Auburn's quarterback is going to be. Right. He's in a he's in a job fight. But if I were Auburn, I would just put him in a glass case and I would just bring bring him out for Bama. Yeah, yeah. he makes right. one start. He beat him last year as Texas A&M starting quarterback. It was one of the better games a quarterback in the country played last year. It was like he, someone else inhabited his body in yeah. that game. It was like, where did that come from? And Auburn's like, let's get some of that. And they got in the transfer. Jimbo coaches one football game a year, and that just <laughs> happened to be the one that he coached. The year before, it was Florida. He just and, – and then other than that, he's just vibing. I don't know. But um, so so I do think, though, that – Auburn's still plenty talented, right? Like their roster isn't as good as it's been in previous years, but they're still good enough, I think, to be able to hang with some of these top teams if things go right. Uh, As we saw last year against Alabama, I I think the other factor that I take into this too is that, I mean, I think for Brian Harson, let's let's just say he's not fired as yet. Uh, I think that he understands what beating Georgia or Alabama would mean. Right. I mean, if they go if they go six and six again, but one of those wins are against Alabama or Georgia. 
I'm not saying it buys him another year, but it might, right? Like, I mean, that's how much these games mean to Auburn. It, it would be an indicator that they're heading in the right direction in a lot of different ways. Now, the big question for me is that quarterback position. I don't feel like they got any better <laughs> from last year by uh, the additions that they made. But, you know, I, I think that um, I, I think that by the end of the year, the other part of this, too, is that, you know, you get Georgia in October and you get Alabama in November. So there's a little bit of separation between those games. You maybe have an opportunity to reinvent yourself a little bit if things don't go well in that first game. So it, it's going to be tough. I mean, Auburn's schedule this year is pretty dang hard. They, they get Penn State early in the year, too, in addition to playing the SEC West schedule, uh, in, in addition to getting Georgia in the crossover game. Like it, it's a tough schedule, but I think that that Auburn might view this as the opportunity that it is, and and that could be enough. If we're keeping count, I believe it was seven times that the phrase "if he's not fired yet" was applied <laughs> to that Brian Harson <laughs> conversation. So good luck to Brian Harson at Auburn this year. I, yeah, the, the question is, uh, when do we ask if this is going to impact Miami? Is Kevin Steele just going to leave? Is is he just going to be the interim coach at Auburn anyway? Oh, <laughs> oh Joe, Auburn coach at Orgeron. Yeah. <laughs> the greatest interim coach of all time. Yeah. Uh, Urban Meyer. How about Urban Meyer, interim coach at Auburn? Let's just throw out every name. Don't even joke about that. Don't even joke about that. <laughs> Let's do – we're going to save the, the Heisman conversation for last. Let's do right now the, the team that is not right now a contender in the playoff in 2022, but we think will be a contender – five years from now. So Shahan, we'll start off with you. Not a contender right now. We think we'll be a contender in five years. I'm a big Billion Apier fan. I, I think that he does a lot of things the right way. And Florida is one of those programs that just should be in the national conversation, right? With the access that they have to talent, with the, their positioning in the sport. Uh, I think that they're one of the few teams uh, in college football whose position is really improving with sort of demographic trends and stuff like that. So I think that Florida under Billy Napier has a chance to be really, really good very quickly. Now, they're going to have to compete with Georgia in their own division. And, you know, the cocktail party is always a, a battle, but I think that he's up for it. Uh, you know, when I look at Billy Napier, obviously he's a good on-field coach. He He's a former receivers coach. I think that that shows up in a lot of different ways. Uh, but, you know, the way that he develops his trenches, too, on both sides of the ball is very impressive. I, I think that he's going to be a little bit of a of a zag to, to some of the zigging going on in the SEC East. And so in a couple of years, I mean, I, I really think that Florida is going to be back where they should be. And on top of that, by the way, I think LSU is really going to have some buyer's remorse on not hiring him. Mike, who you got? Yeah, I had Florida as well. As much as I just pumped up LSU a few minutes ago, I, I do think Florida is probably better positioned. I think NIL also plays into that conversation. I've, I've definitely heard a lot of things about Florida's capability in NIL um, and potentially being maybe the strongest in the SEC. Um, so that that's yeah it's a team that has the the recruiting pool has the recruiting area that has the historical motivation for players to go there and i mean they were good 2 years ago don't forget the whole uh, sec championship game with dan mullen as coach Kyle Trask a quarterback 2 years ago and they were giving alabama a run for its money in that game so it's not like they have this huge mountain to climb I and mean, yeah things just fell apart for them in the middle of last year but i don't think the program is just in, in shambles. Like I think that there's definitely some, some things to work with there. And I think Billy Napier's a good hire in the sense that he can be the one to kind of bring it back. And he has that experience with Saban and 
we all know about former Saban assistants like Kirby Smart and Jimbo Fisher beating Nick Saban. So, you know, things can happen. Dan Mullen at Florida, by the way, 2018 year one, wins the Peach Bowl 10 and 3, seventh in the country. 2019 wins the Orange Bowl 11 and 2, sixth in the country. 2020 makes the Cotton Bowl, loses. Eight and four, thirteenth in the country. So he finishes seventh, sixth, thirteenth, and gets fired in twenty twenty one. That is a yep. that is a that is a high bar. I mean, he did it to himself. A lot of it was perception, as much it was as much as it was what was happening on the field. But here we are. We're all stands for Billy Napier on this podcast. We talk about Billy Napier all the time. We think Florida. They hired a guy who finished in the top fifteen three straight years, and we think they're be- they fired him. We think they're better off, Sean. Yeah, well, the funny thing about it too is I remember back at the end of uh, of the 2020 season, people being like, "Well, Dan Mullen is this and this in his last eight games or whatever," and it's like, "Yeah, because he played the SEC championship game and in the and in the Cotton Bowl, like those were losses because they were so good. This was clearly his best team. Like it was crazy." But then obviously, you know, I mean, you can't anticipate a falling off of the rails quite like Florida, South Carolina last year, right? That was crazy. That was one of the craziest games I've ever seen. The halftime interview, Shane Beamer's like, I don't know what the hell is going on here, but I guess I'll take the win, right? So it it was a weird finish, but I think that um, Florida's a very well-positioned program. They are a program that I think uh, is built to be a national brand. I, I think that obviously they proved that under Urban Meyer. I think that the success that they were able to have with Jim McElwain, who I think is a very bad coach uh, for the SEC. Like, I mean, I think that they're just built to do stuff. And I think that Billy Napier, the way that he structures his programs, that, you know, at every level, strength and conditioning, recruiting, like he's just such an organized coach. I think he's taken that from both Davos Winnie and from Nick Saban. I, I, I love what he can do there. And, and I think that Florida is a perfect fit. All right. Last break here on the College Football Survivor Show. When we come back, a Heisman discussion. Who's the best Heisman candidate in the SEC? Who's the dark horse? And then we will go on the record and make our picks. Which SEC team or teams will make the playoff in 2022? Next after this. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Back on the College Football Survivor Show, make sure you guys are reading Shahan J. Haraja at CBSSports.com. And make sure you are reading Mike Rodak at AL.com. Mike, part of the coverage team there, the Crimson Tide. Absolutely the best coverage of Alabama that you will find. If you care about college football, you care about Alabama. If you care about Alabama, you're reading AL.com. All right, so it's let's smush these conversations together, this Heisman discussion. Who's the favorite? Who's the dark horse? Mike? I've been talking about Will Anderson all offseason. First time I talked about him, he was 50 to 1. The odds I'm looking at now, he's 40 to 1. I see a path. 40 to 1 is a dark horse. The odds I'm looking at, he's tied for the 10th best odds. I see a path. I can't call him a favorite. Bryce Young's the reigning guy. I just think voters kind of don't want to give the same guy two Heismans. So there are some other people here. How are you viewing any and all of the Heisman candidates in this league, Mike? Yeah, I, I still think if we're talking a favorite, I think it's hard to pick anybody but Bryce Young. And I mean, there's certainly been guys who have tried to win it twice in a row. It's only happened once. But, you know, I, Johnny Menzel actually had a better season his second year statistically than he did his Heisman year. Um, I don't know why there's this feeling that you can't win it twice. You need to give it to somebody else. Like, give it twice. It's fine. If he's the best player in college football this year, then give it to him. Um, but I, it's, it's funny because Alabama fans, as much as they love Bryce Young and we're happy for him to win the Heisman, 
they were very mad about Will Anderson not even being a finalist because he finished fifth in voting. Um, and I think it's almost like if Alabama fans had to pick, if they had equal years, I think Alabama fans would want to see Will Anderson be considered. Now, you can't sit here in June and say that he's a favorite. I think that's really tough. I think it's going to be really tough for a defensive player to win it again. It's obviously been a while. I don't know, like statistically, what he did last year is still going to be very hard to match. And to go out there every week when teams know exactly what you're capable of doing and are putting a tight end on you or doing whatever to try to stop you every single week to still put up the same stats that you did last year. That's going to be tough. And that's, that's your path forward. If you're a defensive player, it's totally going to be based on your, your sack numbers and your tackle for loss numbers and nothing else. So it's going to be tough for him. I think he's, he's capable as a player of, of being a Heisman, but I still think Bryce Young is, is the favorite. And I mean, CJ Stroud, I think would be what number two right now as, as the, Heisman race is probably you go down the odds for it, but I don't know. It's one of those things too, right? We're sitting here last year talking about what Spencer Rattler. Yeah. You're allowed to throw Spencer Rattler's name in there. Throw it in. Go Gamecocks. Weird things can happen. So yeah, I mean, Bryce Young could fall off this year too. Like that's also possible. And somebody else could step up that we're not even talking about, but I'd still think Bryce right now, if you're sitting here in June, June 9th, as we're talking, is is probably the favorite. Who you got, Sean? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Bryce Young has to be the favorite. I think the thing that'll work to his advantage is that the toughest part of winning back-to-back Heisman's, I think, is you have to outdo your first one, right? Like, you have to outdo it, not just from a statistical perspective, because both Lamar Jackson and Johnny Manziel did that, but I think that also from a team perspective, you have to outdo it. And I think that the one thing that you say is that Alabama does have the potential to do that, right? I think that they have the potential to be 12-0, 13-0, right? And if that happens, I think that gives them a great chance. But I do I do agree. Uh, I do agree with Mike. I mean, defensively, like that's, I think, what this team is really going to be known for, right? 2020, it was the crazy offensive stuff, right? It was, and I think that you had an Alabama receiver Heisman winner, that was very representative for that reason. I think defensively, if Alabama's kind of that team this year, uh, that, then I think that Will Anderson will make a lot of sense. But, you know, we, we can talk about Alabama guys all day. I'm, I'm going to go off board. A uh, couple different directions that I think that you could go here. Uh, the first one, Hendon Hooker over at Tennessee. Mm. Hendon Hooker in the last kind of month of the season went absolutely nuts statistically. Uh 378 yards, five touchdowns in, in the Music City Bowl uh, against Kentucky, a really good defense, completed 75% of his passes, 316 yards, four touchdowns. On the season, 31 touchdowns, three interceptions. That's ridiculous. <laughs> that, that's crazy stuff. Um, in Tennessee, the, the thing with Tennessee, right, is that I think that they would only need to win nine, maybe 10 games uh, in order for Hendon Hooker to be really in this conversation. If he has a decent game against Georgia, it doesn't have to be incredible, right? Last year, he went 65% completion, 244 touchdown interception. Like, that's not bad. If he can improve on that, if they can play, you know, a pretty competitive game against Georgia, I, I think that's probably his pathway. Now, I mean, from my perspective, I feel like, you know, Tennessee's offense is a little bit of a quote-unquote fake offense, but... 
SEC guys don't really seem to get that knock the same way as guys in like the Pac-12 or Big 12. So I think that if he puts up a lot of yards, uh, you know, maybe outside of the pure area, like I don't think that people are going to look at Will Rogers and think, wow, he did something, you know, outrageous because he's running a pure air raid but uh but i think that tendon hooker has a chance to put up some really big numbers and and enter that conversation uh another guy see the funny thing about kentucky is that uh kentucky's best heisman contender is not their number one overall rated quarterback it's chris rodriguez their running back who was a huge player for them last year uh you know one of the leading rushers in the sec same deal i mean they won 10 games last year and Look, getting up to Georgia level is going to be tough, right? Because Georgia's really freaking good and they're known for stopping the run. But if Kentucky's able to pull the Georgia upset, then Kentucky would have a legitimate chance to win the SEC East or at least be in the conversation, maybe be in a tie situation. Uh, and if Chris Rodriguez has a good game in that game, I mean, he's going to rush for 1,500 yards this year. I think that he's somebody who also could enter that conversation. All right, I'll take it back to Bama because here's what I'm – wondering about one is from the Bryce Young perspective there's nobody else on that offense that's going to take any juice away from him because everybody else that's going to be getting the ball as a transfer and they have some young receivers too but he's going to get all the credit for it if if Jameer Gibbs or Jermaine Burton or Ty Harrell have great years it's going to be viewed as Bryce Young elevated them so that will help his case but I do think Nick Saban can win the Heisman for Will Anderson. And Mike, you said very early in this podcast that Nick Saban has called Will Anderson the perfect player. If Nick Saban starts saying things like, I love Bryce Young, he is the best quarterback you could ask for. What a leader. What a competitor. He deserved his Heisman last year, no doubt about it. But our best football player is Will Anderson. He will give permission to everybody in the country to vote Will Henderson first on their ballot. And I could see him doing it. And I could see him saying to Bryce, listen, man, you got yours, right? Let's try to win a defensive Heisman for a guy that everybody loves, that's done everything right from, from play one of his freshman year, who, who I'm not lying. He is the best player in college football. If a defensive guy is ever going to win it, and it's not going to be Charles Woodson playing on offense and returning kicks, if it's going to be a lineman, an edge rusher, an outside linebacker. If a guy like that's going to win it, it's going to look exactly like this. A great year the year before, got overlooked. There's a little controversy that pushes him toward it. It's for the best team, and he's got a coach backing him. Now, the thing that you brought up statistically, Mike, is interesting. Joey Bosa, just as a comparison, 2014, first-team All-American, sophomore year at Ohio State, 13 and a half sacks. Comes back his junior year, double-teamed all the time, five sacks. He wasn't a worse player. But he went from 13 and a half sacks to five. Will Anderson's not winning the Heisman with five sacks. So he might get quadruple team, Mike. So there is a stats threshold he has to reach. But if he reaches it, I could see Nick Saban, like subtly early on, but then when it gets down to winning time in late November and December, I could see him making a decision and saying, our Heisman candidate at Alabama is Will Anderson. And a lot of voters listening. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely there's more conversation about him this year than there was at this time last year. And he had a great freshman year in 2020. Um, it just wasn't he was more of an Alabama conversation than he was a national conversation heading into the year last year. Even through the first three quarters of last season, there weren't a ton of people nationally talking about Will Anderson, even in the Heisman race. I mean, there was still it was all about Aiden Hutchinson. It was all about Bryce Young towards the end, CJ Stroud towards the end. Like Anderson just wasn't getting a ton of talk. 
And then once he wasn't a finalist and there was an uproar from Alabama fans, there was more of a conversation around it mm-hmm. in, in the season that he had. And then you go into this offseason and people start talking about the uh, the NFL draft next year. And is Will Anderson going to be the, the first overall pick or is it going to be Bryce Young or is it going to be C.J. Stroud? Like now that there's this body of conversation around Will Anderson, I think he goes into this year more on Heisman voters' minds. And that's going to help his cause a little bit because people are paying attention to him a little bit more. And that's just the benefit of being good so early, really, in both his case and Bryce Young's case, being what they were last year as sophomores, then still having that junior year to to sort of show off and um, kind of be in in the Heisman conversation from day one, I think helps them out a lot. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it can happen. I just think it's, it's still really tough for a, a defensive player to just overcome what quarterbacks are doing in college football these days and, and being able to win Heisman that way. 40 to one. If you engage in such activities, I would dabble in that 40 to one because you got to look for paths, right? You got to look for paths. And and at the very least you can see the path. All right, let's make our picks. As a lot of chitter chatter, got off on some tangents. It's kind of what we do here. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. It was interesting. I hope you guys liked it. Who's going to make the playoff from the SEC this year? Mike, we will start with you. Put it on the board. Playoff teams from this league. Boring. Boring. It's going to be Alabama and Georgia. I mean, and that's, look, as someone who grew up in the Northeast and nobody cared about college football when I was growing up, I mean, my junior year of high school is the year that Boston College went, I think they were number three in the country for, for a while with Matt Ryan. And that was the same year that in New England, Patriots went 16-0, and the Red Sox won the World Series, and the Celtics won the NBA Finals. Oh my gosh, get over it, please. Not more Boston <laughs> talk. I've heard too much yesterday. <laughs> and so and that was always the problem with college football. It was always like, it's always something distant, like Alabama and Georgia and those states can all worry about that. It was never something that we cared about. And that's sort of the problem with college football is like, it's just the same thing every year. It's the same teams at the top. And I think that's the problem that some people in different corners of the country have with the game, but that's just the reality of the way it is. And so, yeah, it's Alabama and Georgia until somebody else shows up and Auburn did it once. LSU did it once under coach. O. otherwise nobody else like this is just what the sec is. So I think the question for me is not, is there somebody else who's going to be able to make the playoff? Cause I just don't think realistically they probably will. I think the question is, is it going to be Alabama and Georgia or is only one of them going to get in? Um, to me, I think just in, in the way that college football is, and I think the committee showed that they were thinking this way last year, both of them will get in just because of the strength of the SEC. And look, Alabama could have lost that Iron Bowl last year. People don't realize that, that four overtime game, they could have lost to Auburn. That would have been their second loss last year after the Texas A&M loss. If they had come out the next week, and beat in Georgia the same way that they did in the SEC championship game, they would have been in the playoff too. All of the metrics, all of the stats, all of the projections from ESPN and all that had them in the playoff in that scenario. So a two-loss Alabama team still would have made the playoff. That's how the SEC is. Yeah, maybe Ole Miss is a two-loss team that gets into the playoffs or A&M or something like that. I still think it's Alabama and Georgia as either zero-loss teams or one-loss teams going into the playoff. I do think as much as you said that was boring, I do think the question of one team, two team in the SEC is interesting this year. Shahan, who you got? I think Alabama's a lock. I, I think that they are at this moment the best team in the country. We talked about it on the Big Ten show. I think Alabama and Ohio State are on a collision course in the national championship game. 
at this moment, I think Georgia does get in as well. I think that there may be the four. Well, I mean, they probably would be the three seeds so that they wouldn't get a rematch right away. But, uh, but I think that you just look at the state of the sport right now, right? Like, I mean, there's two teams that I think should be locks, Alabama and Ohio State. And the world is kind of pretty open after that. And, and I just look at Georgia's schedule in the regular season. If they lose one, I will say, if they lose one and if they go 11-2 and and lose to Alabama in the SEC championship game, I don't think they get in. I don't think that they have enough good wins on that schedule to overcome it, right? Because that's the thing that you say about Alabama. Alabama played a lot of good teams, right? They they beat Ole Miss. They beat Texas A&M, right? They, they beat some good teams along the way. I don't think that Georgia is going to have that opportunity just because of how the SEC East is going to potentially stack up. Uh, and I don't think that Oregon's going to be a, a super quality win by the end of the year. So I do think that if it's 11-2, and two, then uh, then I'm a little more worried about Georgia getting in. I don't think they're going to go 11 and 2. I think they're going to be 12 and 1 with a loss to Alabama in the SEC Championship game. So I do think that they get in as a 3 seed. And to come full circle, I was just thinking about it. There is no way that two undefeated SEC teams will play in a national championship game. They would have played each other already. So I guess to to come full circle on that one, that's it's probably not possible this year that Alabama and Georgia would be undefeated going into the end of it. I'll say just Bama because I do think I could see Georgia being 12 and 0 losing to Alabama in the SEC title game and not getting in. Because I do think when you start examining Georgia's schedules we talked about, it's like okay, Georgia's 12 and 0, who are their three best wins? It's like Oregon and Auburn and Kentucky. Like the, again that it cuz the SEC is the SEC, but again if you start peeling the layers back, also last year Pac-12 didn't matter and once Clemson got knocked out the, the ACC was out. So that opened the door for a second SEC team and a group of five team. I do think it, I think Clemson's going to be back. So if, if you have an ACC champ, a Big Ten champ, and if the Utah USC, whoever's the best team in the Pac-12, is legit and stacks some wins and does some things, USC is going to play Notre Dame in the last game of the regular season and then might play a Utah rematch in the Pac-12 title game. There's some juice there. I think there's enough juice in those three conferences that I I could see it being tough for the loser of the SEC title game to get in. I do think Alabama's a lock. I just it's one of those things. Georgia's schedule is easy. It might be too easy. So we'll have to see. I think how they win will matter. If it feels like they're steamrolling people and their defense is almost as good, that's one thing. If they're just good and they only have two top 25 wins, and then they lose by three scores to Bama. I, I don't know that that gets them in if the rest of the of the country, Shahan, is sort of back on its feet. Yeah, I, I think that they will get some clout from being the defending national champions. Uh, if Alabama also is 12-0 and slash 13-0 and really looks incredible, right? Like back in back in uh, 2020, we kind of had this conversation because uh, A&M lost by three touchdowns to them in week three of the season, I believe. And people held that against them for a long time. And then at the end, it was like, oh, they were number five in the country. It didn't really matter, right? Like, And so I think that it might be a similar situation here with Georgia, where if they go 12-0 and and they lose to just the team that looks like the best team in the country, I don't think that's enough to keep them out. But, but I mean, you, your point is well taken. I think Tennessee is maybe like a 20-25 to type team. I think that Kentucky is a 15-20 to type team. 
after that, man, like Oregon, maybe at a, a, a 15 to 25, somewhere in that range. But like their best win would probably be like number 17, Kentucky, right? Like, and, and that's not usually what you make a playoff case on, but they are Georgia. Uh, they, they would have just played Alabama. They would be 12 and one. They'd be an SC team. Uh, they're, they'd be the defending national champions. And the other thing too, is that I think it's very difficult for people to separate recruiting from quality sometimes too, right? Like I think that gives you a lot of benefit of the doubt. So like if, if, uh, if, I don't know if, if Kentucky went all the way through and went 12 and no, and then lost to Alabama, I don't think they get that credit, but Georgia recruits like they do. And I think that that'll get them some credit too. So we'll see. I mean, I, I think that I, I think Doug, you're right. There's a lot of juice in the other conferences as well. I think that there's multiple contenders from the Big Ten. I think that there's multiple contenders from the Big 12, the Pac-12. And, and you know, in the ACC, we'll see whether NC State can, can stand up with Clemson. But it is an open year in a good way, I think. And, and I do kind of hope that it's not Georgia just backing in because they're the 12-1 and SEC team. I hope that if they do make the field, they do earn it in a way. And we do have to remember, the eight years of the playoff – the SEC has only gotten two teams in twice. It's not like it happens every year. You know, I mean, that last year is very fresh in our minds, but it is still unusual. So, um, you know, but they are they are the SEC. And I, I'll be curious that that reigning champ aura, how much does that dissipate by the end of the year if the Georgia defense is only good, not great? And if the offense is OK and if they're winning by 10 and 14 instead of winning by, you know, shutting people out and winning by 35. Mike, can you ask Saban if he wants to be on our show sometime? I will. I'm sure he's in a great mood after uh, I reported what he said in Birmingham there. I'm sure he wants me. So can we ask, so we'll do five more minutes on this. Yeah. Uh, Not that we haven't gone too long already. So I went, I reported the Ryan Day stuff in Columbus as he was speaking to a hundred business people. And I just kind of showed up and I was the only media person there. And I, he said it, I mean, he said it publicly, you know, so, so you reported like you were there at the thing. Did Saban know the media was there? Like, what was the vibe of that? Because, again, these guys are at their most honest when they're saying public things that aren't a press conference. Right. So it was an event for the World Games, which are coming to Birmingham. I'm sure I've never gotten as much press as they have now. But um, it was supposed to be 15 minutes that the media was going to be there is what the the press release said. And we all got there. And it wasn't just it was two people from mail.com, me and Michael Casagrande. There was two people from the Tuscaloosa News. There was a videographer from us. There was all four of the Birmingham local TV stations there with their cameras lined up about 20 feet away from the stage for the first, I mean, 15 minutes. We were all there. And that's what they thought it was the only time we we're going to be there. And then nobody ever kicked us out. Like there's nobody from the World Games or nobody from anybody who kicked us out. We just were standing there in clear view of everybody else. And we're and we're dressed in polo shirts and shorts and everybody else is in you know coats and ties. the official journalist's attire right yes. yeah everybody else is in coats and ties it's not like we're blending in at all like we're I'm six foot four i'm standing on the side of the room i think everybody can see me you're six foot four yeah yeah and casagrande is my size too so like they grow big at al.com wow that's exciting we're, we're not invisible and and saban knows our faces like he stares at us every press conference so like i would have to imagine that he knew we were still there we were in clear view um, but again, I think the expectation was that we were going to be gone. And so when they arranged this, uh, this Q and a, and it was moderated by a local radio host here, Jim Dunaway, essentially they put this question about NIL at the end 
because I <laughs> think that we would still be there um, was kind of my understanding of the situation. So we were still there. Again, I think Saban should have realized we were still there because he should have seen us and looked over. Um, in fact, I think he was making some jokes about the media throughout the whole Q&A about the questions we ask and, you know, this typical coach stuff and was kind of looking over at us the entire time. So it wasn't like he had no idea we were there. So, again, I think he knew we were there. I think he didn't think it would get out. But look, like Saban's, I don't want to say been burned, but like Saban should have learned his lesson after last summer with the whole Bryce Young thing in Texas when he said he made a million dollars and Saban thought he was just talking to a bunch of coaches in Texas. And then even um, there's a different coaches clinic in Alabama right after the season when he's talking about the national championship game and how his three young receivers didn't take advantage of the opportunity and was ripping into them. And that video got out as well. So you'd think after a while, he just has to think in his mind, like, it doesn't matter where I am, who I'm talking to, like, it's going to get out, especially in this day and age with cell phone video and all that. So I don't know exactly what his intentions were, or like if he knew exactly who he was talking to, but I, I do believe that it wasn't some grand scheme to come after Jimbo and make a whole national conversation. I do think there was a level of, uh, of uh, error that was made on, on somebody's part here. And I do think that's journalism. Stay until they kick you out. Exactly. That's what I thought too. I showed up. I signed up. I signed up on a list. I had a I had a placard at my table. Like they knew I was there. And so if they would have said, "Oh, you can't be here," I mean, I wasn't I wasn't going to fight people, but they never did that. But also in the end, these guys it helps them that the information gets out because they need they want the they want fans and donors and boosters and the business community to realize, "Hey, we need your money." And so like that's. That's a message that they want out anyway. All right. So that's young journalists show up until they kick you out. That's our journalism lesson for today. Uh, so, yeah, Nick, open invitation to Nick Saban. Whenever does he do podcasts? Has he ever done a podcast, Mike, to your knowledge? If it's a former player of his, that's typically when he does them. Um, I forget some of the guys, but he's, he's like Patrick Peterson, who played for him at LSU one last year. There's been a, like Jacob Hester. On serious, um, it's usually a, a friendly somebody he knows is going to be friendly to him. Let's put it that way. Okay. Does he know that you're friendly or no? I don't, I don't, <laughs> think, he's, I don't think I'm high on his list right now. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we'll work it. We'll do our best. We'll endeavor to get Nick Saban on the College Football Survivor Show. But in the meantime, Mike Rodak, just as good. Just as good. That was tremendous. Make sure you guys are reading Chahanjay Haraja. Make sure you guys are reading Mike Rodak and the crew at AL.com. We love you guys listening. Thanks so much for doing it. One more conference playoff preview next week. It'll be the Pac-12 for now. Thanks to Mike. On behalf of Shahan, I'm Doug. And that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.